Welcome to the Thrive in Fertility podcast brought to you by the Quillet Institute, your mental health resource to support you during your season of infertility. We are here to help you thrive. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Thrive in Fertility podcast. This is Kathy Quillet, your host and CEO of the Quillet Institute. I'm excited that you have allowed me back into your space for another week. I'm excited about my guest today. She is a fount of knowledge and passion. Um, especially for the work that she's doing here in Tennessee. I have Chelsea Caldwell with me today. She's an assisted reproduction attorney here in Tennessee and owner of Chelsea E. Caldwell PLC. Chelsea, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. I'm excited to visit. I'm a huge fan of your podcast and honored to be a guest today. Thank you. Chelsea, before we get into any of the work that you've done, Tell us a little bit of, of your story. You have your own story of uh, infertility, fertility struggles, and how you got into the profession that you're a part of. Yeah, sure. So like you, I share both a, a personal story of infertility and also professionally, I get to help others who have infertility and need third-party reproduction and guide them through the legal process. Um, so personally, my husband and I expected and knew that we would need to have fertility treatment to have children, specifically IVF and TASA and PESA, which is testicular sperm aspiration and percutaneous epididymal sperm aspiration procedures. Um, and so we knew going in and up until that point, um, I had no reason to believe that I myself would have any issues with infertility. Mm -hmm. Um, however, when we were getting ready to begin IVF and the egg retrieval cycle, my testing results came back indicating that I had um, extremely high FSH and a low AMH or low follicle count. And I was diagnosed with diminished ovarian reserve, which meant that the number and quality of my eggs uh, was very low and lower than what's expected for my age. So I believe at that time that we had discussed the diagnosis, my ovarian reserve was functioning as would an ovarian reserve of someone that was 10 years older. Hmm. So taking that into consideration, I was put on a particular IVF protocol and we started the IVF and egg retrieval uh, process. And during that first cycle, I ovulated early, which I was told was a very rare thing to happen. Um, so I remember that just being absolutely crushing. And it was mm -hmm. at that point I realized that this really is out of my control and out of my hands. Um, and that was a hard thing to go through. Um, but after waiting the month or so, and we started another cycle, switched the protocol, and uh, completed a, a second egg retrieval, uh, which was successful. And we came out with a few very good quality embryos uh, that made it to the blastocyst stage and beat the odds on that and then proceeded with the embryo transfer. Um, with the embryo transfer, my lining wasn't as thick as it should have been. We ended up transferring two, had a lower percent, lower than 30% chance of both taking, and once again beat the odds and found out we were pregnant with twins. And so um, kind of merging with that professionally, um, it really affirmed my desire to, uh, knew that, and then I knew that this is what I wanted to do was to help others who struggle with infertility and are desirous of parenthood and need assistance to become parents. 
Um, so professionally, I have my own law practice. It's dedicated solely to assisted reproduction um, or ART as it's more commonly referred mm. to. And I'm licensed in both Tennessee and Arkansas and also serve as the director of legal services for Family Inceptions International Surrogacy and Egg Donation Agency. Um, wow. So that's a little bit about me. And um, it's funny because generally speaking, there's often a negative reaction when you tell someone you're a lawyer, especially a totally. family lawyer. It's like uh, going but, to the principal's office. I know, but um, I, I love it because I like to respond and say I practice in the happy side of family law. That, that's, uh, that's what makes it unique to me and I'm also an adoptee so having that background has been um, helpful in appreciating the fact that there are many paths to parenthood and many ways to create a family. Yeah so tell us what you do in your firm what do you specialize in kind of off mic we were talking about surrogacy and you mentioned you know working with egg and sperm donation and in the other part of your job tell us tell us what you do. Yeah, so um, uh, specializing in the niche of assisted reproduction, um, I help others through the legal process of uh, family building that need assistance um, in terms of needing a gestational carrier or if they need an egg donor or a sperm donor or need a, an embryo, uh, a, a donated embryo in order to achieve a pregnancy and um, have a child. Um, I would say the bulk of my work um, comes down to uh, surrogacy. Mm. Uh, and so that in particular can be broken down into two phases, uh, so to speak. And where I come in is helping with uh, either drafting or reviewing a gestational surrogacy agreement. And then the other phase is helping with establishing the intended parents uh, parentage rights through a parentage action. So the gestational surrogacy agreement will occur first and that's executed between the intended parent or intended parents and the gestational carrier and her spouse if she's married. And the purpose of that, uh, technically speaking, is to define and specify the party's rights and responsibilities related to the surrogacy arrangement. So in other words, it's there to clearly state the intentions of the parties to the agreement. And it, it should state that the intended parents desire to become the legal parents and agree to take on all rights and responsibilities of uh, parenthood for the child or children born pursuant to the surrogacy arrangement. And that the gestational carrier and her spouse, if she's married, do not desire to have those rights and responsibilities. Hmm. Um, it should be also be clear that the gestational carrier is carrying the child for the intended parents and that she's agreeing to do everything to the best of her ability to ensure a healthy pregnancy. Um, these agreements are drafted to be fair and balanced both to meet the needs of the intended parents and the gestational carrier. Um, and it is the intended parent's child, but it's also the gestational carrier's body. So both interests have to be uh, balanced in that respect. And that's so complicated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have so many clients that are, are doing, are waiting on their, on their surrogates to birth their child. And there's so many questions around like, 
I or concerns like I can't control what she's doing with her body. I have no control over, you know, how she's choosing to live. I, I choose to trust her, but it's one more piece of infertility that you have no control over. Right. How do you help exactly. write that up? Yeah. So that's a, that's an excellent point. And, um, the, uh, the agreement, I mean, the agreements are drafted to be very comprehensive. They contemplate nearly everything you can imagine from the beginning of the journey to the end of the journey and delivery of the child. Uh, and then after that, uh, they contemplate the uh, medical procedures that are, that are intending to take place. Um, how many embryos will be transferred? The number of embryo attempts that will be made. Um, and then it contemplates the state the child will be born what law applies. Another main component is uh, that the intended parents will bear financial responsibility for all of the medical expenses yeah. uh, that are incurred as a result of uh, the procedure and the surrogate carrying the child. Um, what, whose insurance will be used? Uh, what are certain restrictions that the gestational carrier agrees to do, uh, not to do? What are certain things she agrees to do? Uh, and then it, address, it addresses termination, termination of pregnancy and selective reduction. Uh, oh. Who makes those decisions in that event? Um, and so it's, it's meant to contemplate nearly everything that you can imagine. But in the end, it's important to know that even though it's drafted comprehensively, not every provision in that agreement will be enforceable. And so it does require a certain amount of uh, managing expectations along with trust in the process and trust in, in who you're matched with in proceeding forward with the journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Chelsea, so, so what happens after the surrogacy agreement is executed? So after that's executed, the parties can proceed with an embryo transfer and if that's successful and the gestational carrier becomes pregnant, um, then the parties will proceed with a parentage action. And the purpose of that is to legally establish the intended parent's rights as the intended parents of the child uh, the gestational carrier is carrying and have the intended parents listed as the child's parents on the child's birth certificate. Um, this process and also the surrogacy agreement in states that have a surrogacy statute varies state by state. Uh, a lot of states allow for intended parents to obtain an order of parentage prior to the birth, what's known as a pre-birth order, um, which usually takes effect upon the birth of the child. Some states require a birth order be done post-birth. Some states require an adoption to occur dependent on uh, certain circumstances. Some states' processes uh, is a function of administration and going directly through the state's Department of Health. Um, and not only does the process vary state by state, but it can also be dependent upon sexual orientation and marital status. So much to think about. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a lot to think about. I am so glad that there are people like you in this world. Okay, so Chelsea, I want to talk about what What's surrogacy law in Tennessee about? Sure, so uh, Tennessee does not have a specific statutory law that permits surrogacy. Rather, it has a statute in the adoption code or the adoption part that simply defines it. Um, but um, 
for a parentage action in Tennessee, we're able to uh, use processes to obtain pre-birth orders if one parent is genetically related to the child. Um, that is to say, if a child is conceived with a donated egg, then the intended mother or the second intended non-genetic father has to complete an adoption after the child is born. Um, so Tennessee is uh, unique in that regard. Um, and it, it, it is complicated. Um, the process is complicated. Um, and one surprising thing about uh, surrogacy in Tennessee is that although that these results typically don't vary uh, venue to venue as far as being able to obtain pre-birth orders in the process uh, to uh, secure a step parent adoption if an egg donor is involved, different counties and different judges or even chancellors within a certain county have different preferences and procedures. Um, and so some venues allow for e-filing, others don't and everything must be filed in, by mail or in person. Some judges or chancellors require a hearing and require only the attorneys involved attend. Some require everybody involved attend. Um, and then certain venues have, require additional filings to be filed. Um, so it really varies county to county. Um, and uh, overall, Tennessee is just complicated when it comes to oh. surrogacy law. So why would somebody get to the point where they need a surrogate or a gestational carrier? So it could be um, intended parents or that, are, that have gone through fertility treatment uh, for quite some time and for some reason uh, they're just unable to get pregnant. Uh, it could be an intended mother who has, has failed to carry a pregnancy to full term who has endured several uh, miscarriages. Um, unexplained infertility is a cause of that. Um, and also women who have undergone a hysterectomy, women who are born without a uterus, uh, women who have issues with their uterine lining, um, or if they have other uh, health conditions uh, which make it dangerous for them to carry a pregnancy. Um, another aspect uh, would be advanced maternal age, um, and then also components that uh, aren't uh, rooted in infertility, but uh, intended parents who biologically can't conceive, such as single intended fathers or same-sex male couples as yeah. well. Yeah. What makes somebody a good candidate to be a surrogate? Like, how does somebody come to you and are like, I'm done? Like, and, and I guess what, what things do they need to be aware of? Like, do they need to be done having their own kids? How many live births should they have had? Are they allowed to have had miscarriages? What makes them a good surrogate? Sure. So for, first and foremost, um, I would think the, the most important thing is that they're doing this for an altruistic purpose. Hmm. Um, they're doing this with a, a good motive, and that's to help someone who is struggling to conceive, who can't conceive without their help. Um, you really want a surrogate that is doing this for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, Second of all, the candidate should meet ASRM guidelines, which is the um, American, uh, American Society. Society for Reproductive Medicine. And most clinics follow these guidelines, so that shouldn't be um, an issue. But essentially, um, ASRM recommends that the surrogate be between 21 and 45 years of age, her BMI be between 19 and 30, a non-smoker, live in a non-smoking home, 
clean criminal background, um, undergoing and passing a psychological evaluation, um, and having a support system as well, whether that be a spouse, partner, friend, or family member. Living in a surrogacy legal state is important. Um, and then having given birth to at least one child of her own uh, as well. And then being medically cleared from an LB, um, history of uncomplicated pregnancies, uh, typically no more than five deliveries and three C-sections, and no recent history of mental illness or taking medications for that. If you could give one piece of advice, Chelsea, to somebody that's either considering being a surrogate or considering using surrogacy, what would you want, what would you want to tell somebody? Um, my one piece of advice is uh, to trust the process and um, to also manage expectations. And uh, it is a journey um, and hopeful parents are no strangers to having patients, uh, having gone through infertility mm -hmm. and trusting the process uh, as well. Uh, it's an important component. Um, as we discussed earlier, you know, not every provision in the surrogacy agreement will be enforceable. And it does take a uh, significant amount of trust as an intended parent in your surrogate and also as a surrogate in the intended parents uh, throughout their journey. And you only have a certain amount of control in the process and trust is a key component to that. Yes. How long typically does it take for somebody to say, I want to use a surrogate to the surrogate is pregnant with my child? That's a good question. And I would say that it probably depends on whether the intended parent or parents are going independent or using an agency uh, to locate and match uh, with a surrogate. Um, a large majority of journeys are agency facilitated journeys and the agencies really help in not only matching and locating the surrogates with intended parents, but also facilitating the journey from start to finish. Um, if you're going independent, unless you have a family member, a friend that's willing to carry, finding a surrogate can be very difficult. Um, and so I would say that from the point of finding a surrogate to the point of actually transferring the embryo, um, I would say on average, uh, it wouldn't be uncommon for that to be six months, a year, maybe longer, even depending on where you are in the queue, if you do use an agency, on waiting time um, to be matched. Uh, there is a heavier there's a very heavy demand for surrogates um, and there are more intended parents than there are surrogates. And so taking that into consideration, you can be waiting for quite some time before you're actually matched. And then once you're matched, then you start going through the steps and as far as getting the surrogate medically cleared, getting a psych evaluation, um, making sure all is ready to go prior to uh, contracts and then starting the gestational surrogacy agreement and that must be executed and in place and um, the parties must have legal clearance prior to any embryo transfer occurring. Sure. sure. Now, if I'm interested in pursuing surrogacy, can you give me um, a ballpark cost that I'm looking at? 
I don't want you to, to throw out your prices, but if somebody's going to think, I, I want to, surrogacy is, is the path for me, run me ballpark cost. So, um, again, ballpark costs are hard because the, each journey is different, but if you're, if you're looking at doing an independent without an agency, um, I mean, I would say ballpark, the lowest that if the surrogate's receiving compensation, the lowest I would start at, which is probably not common, would be in the range of 60,000. Um, so you, you see it being more. Yeah, the tip, yeah. And I would say probably ballpark average in the neighborhood of 130 to 150,000, especially if an agency's involved. Now that's taking into consideration the cost of fertility treatment, the compensation for the surrogate, the agency fees, um, and then also any kind of ancillary reimbursements um, that the surrogate would receive along the way, reimbursements for invasive procedures, paying insurance premiums. Um, it, it all adds up and it's all very costly. And then also um, fees for legal. Um, there's so many moving parts to this and, wow. the, and it, it's unfortunately a costly, uh, a costly uh, thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. But that, those, those prices that you're throwing out there covers everything from your fees, medicine, drugs, transfer, getting the embryo all the way through pregnancy and labor. Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. Start to finish. Yes. Start to finish. And I, I would really err more on the side of, um, especially the $100,000 range. Um, sure. I would say that uh, there are few and far between that would, that would cost uh, lower than that. Yeah, good. Well, thank you for telling us all of that. Now, alongside, in conjunction with you doing all of this work professionally, you're also in the process of helping Tennessee get coverage, insurance coverage for IVF. So Chelsea and I originally met because of the grassroots effort, which has become a huge movement in Tennessee with the Tennessee Fertility Advocates. Tell us what you've got going on with, with this work that you're doing for them. Yeah, so it's been great. Um, I've been very fortunate to be involved with that group and um, Davina Fankhauser, who is the uh, founder of uh, Fertility Within Reach, and I uh, co-authored legislation that was introduced this session to the Tennessee General, General Assembly, um, and it's titled the Tennessee Pro-Family Building Act. Um, it made it through uh, various committees through both the House and Senate, and then uh, we found out recently, a few weeks ago, or I guess it was probably a week and a half ago or so, um, a few minutes before the uh, Senate and Labor Committee in the Senate that our bill was going to be rolled to next session. Um, it, we've moved mountains. The group has moved mountains this it's session. It's been phenomenal to watch. Yes, yes. And um, I credit that really to Molly and Lauren, and they have just worked tirelessly in, um, in this effort. And uh, the group's grown to over 7,000 advocates and um, we need some more time to work on language, but we'll be back next session and hope to get something passed then. Yeah, it is so exciting. I, you know, 
you and I are both, well, you're in Arkansas. I'm in Tennessee. We practice in the state of Tennessee. I have so many clients who are just behind this. And, and finally, even though, you know, it's, it might not be happening for them right away that we're going to get coverage to belong to something bigger than yourselves in the middle of your own reproductive trauma feels huge at recording. We just got through uh, national infertility awareness week and everybody's wearing orange and living loud and, and proud. And that's just one more thing in the state of Tennessee for those struggling with infertility or those passionate about getting assistance, right? Because we talked about the money for surrogacy, but IVF is, you know, once you realize that you need support, you don't just get to have free sex to make a baby. Once right. it becomes something that's complicated, we're talking tens and tens of thousands of dollars. So advocating on behalf of, you know, cutting that number down a little bit and just being a part of a group. Um, yes. And the, the community there is just incredible. And yes. uh, it, it's so important to openly discuss this topic and so that it can be destigmatized and normalized in discussion and uh, promoting awareness around it is just so important. Yes. I love it. Chelsea, you are doing amazing work. I love getting to know you, but also just sharing the state professionally with you and knowing I have a resource to send um, my clients is just an exciting thing to know somebody like you in this field. So thank you for joining us today. Any parting thoughts? If we want to get a hold of you, if we want to work with you, where are you? How do we find you? Yeah, sure. So um, you can find me online at www.surrogacyesquire.com or uh, www.caldwellattty.com. Uh, my email's on there. I'm readily available. Um, and as well as my phone number, 901-602-6850. actually have locations in both Arkansas and in Memphis. So, and I fairly split my time between those two states. So, um, yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right, friends, we will be back next week with uh, another guest coming to talk to us about embryo donation. I'm excited for him to join us. Have a great week. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Thrive Infertility brought to you by the Quillet Institute. Don't forget to check us out online at thequillitinstitute.com or at the Quillet Institute on Instagram and Facebook. Have a great day.